Welcome to Prospecting Purpose, where we explore mining's role in shaping a sustainable, socially just, and brighter future. I'm Liz Friel, your host for the series, with a rotating guest on every episode. Joining me as co-host for this episode is Andy Reynolds, formerly a naval engineer, innovation consultant, and director general, energy, mining, and environment with the National Research Council of Canada. Today, he brings together his passions for technology, clean energy, social impact, and mining as president of Inspire Resources. He's now in his third career, this time running a social enterprise that reimagines the traditional industrial mining business model as an activity in service to community development. Welcome, Andy. Thanks, Liz. Good to be with you. Awesome to have you on the show. Can you start by telling us what first drew you to mining? Yeah, mining is fascinating because it's uh, it's where the value chain meets the earth. And, you know, it's a little bit like the source of a river. And that it's kind of a almost a magical place. You know, lots of people live by rivers mm. and never visit the source. Uh, you know, I think we really have to care about the source of the value chain. But I would say I'm not sure that I'm in the mining sector. I had a very interesting experience over Christmas reading a book called Green Swans by John Elkington. And John uses this phrase, people in the system change sector. And I think, you know, those are my people. That's, that's the sector that I feel like I'm in. You make a great point about mining not existing in isolation because indeed it's intrinsically linked to so many parts of our lives. Mineral resource extraction has been this incredible lever of economic growth over the past century. And we associate that with human progress over that time. I don't think that's a wrong idea, but there's this question that troubles me that I feel is really uh, significant to our episode today. And that's the question, progress for who? Because the reality is global inequality has been growing immensely over that exact same time period. Today is growing for more than 70% of the population. So when we talk about the industries that fuel global economic growth, like mining, if we're honest, the data shows that this growth is only fueling progress for some versus progress for all. And for me, that suggests there's something really wrong about the way that we've been doing business in recent decades. And we see countless case studies from mining communities around the world showing how often this industry unintentionally fosters inequality and how often the positive impacts that we do have are not lasting in terms of community resilience. And of course, this has a really strong link to our issues with license to operate. Throughout human history, when social inequality rises, so do social movements. I don't believe for a moment that that status quo is inevitable or even that it's going to endure. And I'm hoping to explore with you today what it could look like to really turn the tides on this. Can we harness mineral resource development in a new, innovative way to generate social value and accelerate progress for all at the most local of levels? I know you've got a few ideas on this. What do we need to do differently with the current approach? Considering things like financial models, shape of the project lifecycle, uh, commercial and supply chain architecture, what are your thoughts? Well, you make a really good point that it's it's a it's a larger trend than just mining. You know, it's really a global kind of rethink of capitalism that's going on, and I think that there's broad agreement within the mining sector that that mining has to change. You know, there's a broad recognition that there has to be more community engagement, there has to be less environmental impact, there has to be fairer outcomes. The question is not the direction of travel. The question is the speed. How fast can we make these changes in mining? How, how fast can mining adapt to the changing realities of social expectations globally? Mm-hmm. You know, we're really in uh, exponential times here that things have very significant impacts very quickly. Ideas spread very quickly. The global population is more connected than it has ever been. And so we have to do things differently. And 
what we have to do differently is both very simple and yet extremely difficult. And that is to escape from this idea that the current approach can't be changed. We're taking refuge in the idea that the current approach is the only possible approach. And we really have to stop doing that. That's the most fundamental thing we have to change. So we're talking about engaging communities in a much more profound way versus coming, say, from a perspective of community being second, third, fourth, fifth, or even further down the list of priorities when we are talking about developing a particular deposit. It's a super unconventional goal for any industry incumbent in the audience, even as a passionate CSR practitioner. When I first heard about your ideas, I was pretty uncomfortable because it was just so different from how we think about business in this industry and how we think about social impact. I'm also genuinely plagued by all the missed opportunities in mining for meaningful community development contributions. What do you think are the biggest challenges that exist? What are big barriers? I think fundamentally we have to de-isolate mining you know, mining, mining is in a very isolated place. And so you have this great divide and you have people on one side saying there should never be any mining anywhere, it's inherently bad. And you have people on the other side saying, don't these kids know where their cell phones come from? And, and we really have to escape that. If you're a consumer in a linear economy, you have to care about mining. You, you have no, no choice because linear product value chains begin and end in the commons. I don't know if you've thought lately about examining your emotions when you go to a landfill. But when I go to a landfill and I drop something off and I walk away and I pay my $12 and I just wash my hands of that responsibility and it becomes society's problem. We can't, our, our ownership of products does not exist in isolation. Maybe everybody should go to a mine and maybe everybody should experience this. When I was in the Navy, I worked for quite an insightful admiral in the 1990s who said, that you know, the Canadian Navy was going through a tough time. And he said that the best thing that he could do for the Canadian Navy was to give every Canadian citizen a chance to spend a day at sea in a warship. And it was really quite an insight that we have to bring people together so that they can experience the messiness of it all. Not just the, the picture that we package up for them in our corporate communications, but actually experience the lives of the people who are working in it. And so I really think we have to bring communities together and let them experience the messiness of the trade-offs and the interwoven human stories so that they can understand that this is a complex thing that we all have an obligation to do something about. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a great opportunity that you've identified there. Albeit not, not the first time I've heard, but I, it really resonates for me. What are some other opportunities that you think we have? Well, I think we have to recognize that a global shift is underway. Era of shareholder primacy is coming to an end. And when we think about making change happen from within the private sector, there are huge opportunities in changing the investors. Paul Polman did this with Unilever very famously uh, in 2009. Right. And so there is this... Mm, brilliant um, case study. Yeah. So there is this opportunity to really change that. And we're seeing that with ESG investing. We're starting to see that ESG principles in investing are tending to kind of sweep up the laggards in the industry. They're not creating leaders, but they're certainly sweeping up the laggards and pushing them on. And I think there is this opportunity to create leaders by bringing impact investment into it. I really like the distinction that you've made, Liz, about ESG being changing investment and impact investment being investing in change. And so when we look at the, the leaders in the industry, you know, I think we need to associate them with the leaders in capital, the leaders in investment. And we can do that. And I think our, our insight is really that digitalization is going to enable us to do that because it's going to create the transparency that allows 
natural resource projects to create impact, not just accommodation, but to create impact. And so I believe that there are going to be impact investors who will welcome what I would call a detoxified mining thesis if we can create that thesis, if we can create that opportunity. So I'm really excited to actually ask about that thesis and that opportunity. I'd love for you to share a bit with our audience about how these kinds of ideas connect to your company, Inspire Resources. You say you're, quote, leading a social enterprise to reimagine mining as a service to community development. So what does that mean and what led you to that vision? Mm -hmm. So um, a few years ago, I got into some quite serious conversations with my co-founders, Rick Howes and Adrian Davidzer. So Rick was CEO of Dundee Precious Metals at the time, and Adrian was at Deloitte's. And we had this whole jigsaw puzzle of ideas about digitalization, about commercial architecture, systems engineering, financial innovation, social purpose. And over the course of a, a couple of years, we debated this. And when we finally put the puzzle together, what it revealed was a picture that we would now say is Inspire Resources and, and the business model we've, we've come up for. So it was really just, it was an emergent business model. But essentially, we're preparing for a time when the local community becomes the owner of certain kinds of mining projects. We think that it's possible to develop a business model that would unlock impact investment to enable them to do that. And the impact investment would be amplified by the local mineral wealth. So it's quite a major shift. It involves changing the capital structure, changing the investors, and building a lot of collaborative business relationships. Hmm, incredible. And how does that relate to what you call the asset mindset? Because I know, again, that this is one of your big beliefs. We need to escape from the asset mindset. Why is that so important? Yeah, well, you know, focusing on asset value is good conventional business practice. There's no doubt about that. But when you are so focused on a large asset with a lot of risk around it, that mindset tends to cause you to see communities as having a competing claim on the rent from your assets, or even worse, as a source of value destruction. So we've got this problem now where incumbent mining companies are having two conversations at the same time. They're having one conversation in which they're respecting the traditional owners of the land and talking about the value they're creating in communities. And then there's another conversation with shareholders in which they're saying that they're creating value in the asset and maximizing the asset value and securing rents on the asset as free cash flow for investors. And so, you know, I just think that that tension is quite destructive. To hold those two perspectives in mind at the same time is quite challenging if you really want to transform the purpose of your company in in society, then you just have to escape from that. I just don't believe it's necessary. And it speaks to a bigger issue that I feel we could do a whole other episode on around the whole notion of ownership of mineral resource development. When we talk about an asset, generally it's a, it's a private sector entity that believes itself to own those resources. But in many parts of the world, that's still not a model that is really fully espoused at the local level. Yeah, I think that's very true. You know, there are some parts of the world where the, the president of the country is the personal owner of the mineral wealth of the country. Right. And, and others where at the local level, they say, we don't really care who's sitting in the capital city and we don't really care what your piece of paper says. We understand the land to be everyone's and we, we understand the land to be not ownable per se. Yeah. So there's an interesting element there around the, the right to extraction based on the right to own or access. Yeah, it's, um, it's a fiat asset. The mining companies don't own geology. They own 
a piece of paper that's given to them by the government, which, which is a permit to extract the geology. And yet they talk about it as if it were a tangible asset. They borrow against it. They borrow against reserves as if they're a tangible asset that they own. You'd have to ask the question, under what circumstances might this model for rights change? We think about things like the democratization of artificial intelligence. Maybe exploration isn't going to be such a specialized business in the future. And if that were the case, if it were not so specialized and if it were not so risky, then why would asset extraction or, or extraction rights need to be created as an asset in the in the way they are today. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in an in an exponential world, it, things can change very quickly. Absolutely, it reminds me of this book that has just really it really made my twenty twenty. And it's a book by Peter Diamandis called "The Future Is Faster Than You Think." It's a follow up on his previous book that sort of introduces the idea of exponential thinking. It's extraordinary. He goes through all these major technologies and starts to show you how they are converging so much more quickly than we expected. Things that we feel like are a sci-fi future and the impact that that is already having on the world. We're not 10 or 20 years out. This is like three years away kind of thing. It's it's amazing. I'd highly recommend it if you haven't read it. It sounds great. So a core feature of Inspire Resources is this thing called Mineral Impulse. It takes a page out of the book of the software world, I think. What exactly is that? We describe it as a platform business model, and of course that creates confusion because software companies use the term platform as a marketing strategy. So let's first of all escape from the idea that it's a software platform. So strictly speaking, a platform business model is a multi-sided market in which the number of suppliers on the platform is attractive to customers, and the number of customers on the platform is attractive to suppliers. And so the model grows quite quickly. And actually, there's, you know, there's a new example in the mining space of platform business model, which is the Auron marketplace, which um, Shell and IBM have come up with. And their idea is to have so many suppliers and products on the platform that it becomes really a one-stop shop for mining companies. So they're trying to create network effects using a platform business model. So in this exponential age, you can benefit from these, this uh, positive feedback effect. Uh, it's called network effects that, that grow uh, the impact of a platform very quickly. And that's the, that's the effect that we want to harness in, in creating impact in the context of the uh, sustainable development goals. Yeah, it's fantastic. So more broadly with Inspire Resources, what exactly is the unique value proposition? Is it the platform? What's the competitive advantage? It's important to recognize here that we're not trying to compete with mining companies. You know, we're not going to replace vast economy of scale plays that are miles from any community because... They will, they will continue to have this economic advantage. What we're offering is, is a better way to develop um, a small fraction of mining projects that have uh, significant ties to community aspects. Uh, and many of those projects would never be developed under the incumbent model anyway. But we do think that one day communities will have better access to capital to develop certain kinds of projects than mining companies do because that capital will care more about the community's plan than it does about the mine plan. And the mine plan will become uh, an element of the community's economic development plan. So we aim to encourage that transition to open up that new market of investment for new kinds of projects that really are designed to meet the needs of a community's development plan. You're talking about unlocking an entirely new pool of capital for mineral resource development. Yeah. Fascinating. Definitely. You know, and there's one way of looking at mining, which is to say that actually the investors in mining are the customers. You know, the people for whom a mining CEO puts on a tie are the investors. 
therefore they must be the customers. And uh, if your customers are starting to dwindle, well, you know, you're, you're a business, you have to find new markets. Uh, you have to find uh, new investors and you have to restructure the products that you're offering, the investment products that you're offering to meet the um, risk profile and, and the expectations of those new markets. Yeah. So in a sense, that's, that's part of what we're doing. Yeah, I, I like that comparison. It's a good way to think about it. So where's the company at now? Well, we uh, incorporated in 2019 and over the last uh, six or seven months or so, we've put together a leadership team. So I've got a couple of vice presidents. We all have this commitment to a, a massive transformative purpose, which is fueling sustainable community development at scale. We've mapped out our vision and values. We've got a, a global network of people because there's, there's not actually that many people who get this. And so we like to think we're in touch with most of them. And so we built that global network. What we've figured out is that we fundamentally need to change the design process for mines. You know, it's currently configured entirely for investment attraction. So what the design process does is to remove risk so that investment can flow. And by the time communities are engaged, the design is often a fait accompli. So if we're talking about building mines to deliver impact to community development plans, we really have to design mines to the needs of those development plans. That is a quite a significant engineering challenge. And uh, we're working with various software packages to pull together a capability, a really quite advanced capability for designing mines in a different way. And indeed, we've recently signed a collaboration agreement with MineRP, which is a software company that has a very fundamental base layer on which we can stack all kinds of other applications. And, and we're in discussion with several other software companies. That's great. And it's certainly a really revolutionary approach in the industry. So far, who have you found is the hardest to get on board? And what are some of the challenges that you're facing with this vision? Well, um, the challenge here is that it, it is quite a radical vision. We are a bootstrapped startup and we need revenue in order to develop this. And of course, the incumbent way of doing business is where all the money is, you know, particularly in the good times. So we are consulting. We're consulting to mining companies that share our vision that the design process has to be transformed. We um, recruited our first client a few months ago. So we've been working with a mid-tier Australian mining company that's, very, that's quite visionary. And we've been looking at the fundamentals of the system architecture of mining uh, and how that can be changed. So uh, we're already working on things that no one else has ever done in mining. It's quite a surprise to us to get to that frontier so quickly. The first client was quite open that they hadn't found anybody in the world with, with ideas like ours and was very keen to work with us. So we're hoping to preserve that uniqueness, to preserve that edge, and to work with uh, clients who really share our ambition to, to transform things uh, rather than slipping into conventional consulting work you know, that wouldn't uh, propel us on our path. So what is, can you maybe describe what, what is the reimagined business model? The reimagined business model is, is that communities have much more say in what happens in their local area and much greater ability, first claim, if you like, on the mineral wealth that is extracted from beneath their feet because they sure as heck have first claim on the adverse impacts. You know, that, that has not been adequately recognized in the past. So it can be done differently. And what's needed is an organization that can manage the complexity of doing that because it involves a lot of partnerships. 
So we in Inspire Resources want to be the first mining as a service contractor, mining as a service to community development. And in that role, we wouldn't own equipment. We would be the orchestrating partner who has a range of partnerships, industrial partners, power production partners, water treatment partners, platform partners, software partners. And we would orchestrate an alliance of specialist service providers that can extract a small local mineral deposit, which may well have a short life, very efficiently, with very low impact, very transparently, as a service to the community development plan and allow the plan for the community to then create sustainable development that isn't dependent on a mine that's about to close. So we would be the prime contractor, we would be orchestrating all of those relationships, we'd be creating alliances of companies, specialist companies that can conduct a mining operation and then move on to somewhere else. And we would be mass customizing those designs so that they're repeatable at low marginal cost in a large number of places. And indeed, we have a vision that from one control room, we would operate 100 mines. We have a vision that in the design process for a mine, we would have 100 simultaneous users of the design tools working together to bring different perspectives. And we have a vision that in finding these projects, we would be able to do 100 preliminary economic studies per day. Wow. <laughs> so it's really quite a transformational um, design challenge to make this happen. We need to focus on our specialist role, which is to be the orchestrator that enables that to happen. We would see ourselves being a B Corp. We would see ourselves having an excellent intangible value that helps communities to unlock impact investment that enables them to acquire the extraction rights for what's under their feet. So the community would seek impact investment and the profits would come straight to the community uh -huh. in this model? Yeah, I mean, obviously there would be all sorts uh, of investment going on here. So if you think about outsourcing the mining operations to specialist service providers, you know, they have to buy their equipment. And so, you know, there's CapEx going in there, there is uh, infrastructure CapEx, there is power production CapEx. What we're doing is unbundling the um, financial model so that these investments come from the, the places that are best suited to making them and then structuring the project so that everybody who invests in that gets a reasonable and stabilized return and then allowing the community and their senior governments, because of course the communities don't exist in total isolation, there are, there are other governments too, to then understand uh, how the economic benefits will be distributed across various jurisdictions. So is that like a new vision for shared value? Huh? Like if the CapEx is coming from different places, the investment is coming from different places, presumably also then the profit is going to multiple places instead of being concentrated in one or two entities as in the traditional model. Yeah, and this is the complexity that was not previously possible. You know, when we look at technology, we've now got smart contracts, We've got uh, blockchain, we've got short interval control, we've got radical insights into what's going on in a system. And if we now enable those partners, those members of that alliance, to co-design the system, including the performance goals that they're going to have to meet in operating it, then I believe we can find a collaborative business relationship that can tolerate the complexity, that can avoid the cost of conflict, that can build uh, trust between participants, and that can deliver economically superior outcomes even in a mining project that is fundamentally designed to create sustainable economic development in a community. 
it's technology. That's what's making all of this possible. You've got you've got this digitalization for sustainability, which comes from radical transparency and collaboration, all enabled by technology. So the, the real challenge with our business model is that the asset that is extraction rights becomes too valuable by the time communities understand it for them to buy into it. And so there is this thought that communities really need to have better exploration capabilities. And indeed, some indigenous communities have set up exploration companies in order to try and do this so that they can take an ownership position much earlier in the project life cycle. And so I think this is going to change in the future. And indeed, I would argue this is probably a black swan for the incumbent mining industry because we're seeing the democratization of very sophisticated tools in all kinds of fields. It's not going to be long before a community can order from Amazon cheap sensors, put them on cheap drones, fly them over the neighborhood, run some open source AI tools, and start to understand the value of what's under their feet and start to stake claims and take ownership of that very early in the life cycle. And for an industry that depends on a pipeline of projects that are created for them by explorers chasing unicorns, you know, this is a, there's a very significant risk here for the incumbent mining industry. And I think that we are positioning ourselves for a change that is going to be upon us much faster than most people realize. The democratization of tools, particularly artificial intelligence, is going to enable communities to have way more agency way sooner than they ever have before. And they're going to need somebody like us to, to, um, to then move that into uh, a revenue-generating project. Our aim, Inspire Resources, in our digital platform, is to have access to as many data sets as possible and to be automatically analyzing those data sets for the best opportunities, not just ge geologically, but socially, environmentally, to, to understand where the best opportunities are. And so by the time a community is flying its drone, like we would be knocking on the door the next day because we would already know that uh, there's a good opportunity there. And that's how we would grow our impact at scale. You know, in, in our MTT, MTP, we talk about creating impact at scale. We talk about fueling sustainable community development at scale. The at scale bit is what's really a sign of the times, the exponential times. We've got to move very, very fast in order to create at scale. And this is what the incumbent mining industry can't do because it has very few projects uh, and they only come along once in a while. So that, you know, got to change that whole economy of scale paradigm in order to use mining to create socioeconomic impact at scale. But so we're seeing this, this uh, dramatic shift in um, the openness and the accessibility of data and the accessibility of tools that you won't need to have a PhD to operate. You know, we're fundamentally de-skilling all of that because we're, because we're shifting it into artificial intelligence. And that is having a huge impact in other fields of engineering. It will also have an impact on geological exploration. So a community goes and gets a drone, gets a sensor, figures out what kind of resources are in their generalized territory. Then they come to you. What happens next? Well, then we obviously have a sort of project funnel-oriented pipeline. So then we, we run a concept study, which would be highly uh, interactive, and it would be at the concept level of detail. And we would put together our 100 mind designs in a day, and then we would be working with the community's economic development plan to say, you know, what are the designs that best meet the needs? Now, the chances are that we're going to be helping the communities with their visioning activities because 
there are not that many communities that are mature enough to have a really sophisticated uh, economic development plan. But the point is, it needs to be inclusive. It needs to be participative. From the very start, before we've designed a thing, we need to be talking to the customer. In the mass customization business, we then design with the customer to the customer's requirements. And we use the tools that enable us to do that very quickly. We don't just hire Mediocre Engineering Limited to, to run a, a one-year uh, study project you know, and come back with an answer for us, which we then try and sell to the community. This is a much more participative process in which the design lives entirely in software and can be manipulated and exposed and, and is available for participation. And then as we go through stages, we increase the maturity of that and we want to be doing that in the space of a couple of years, you know, a couple of years or less. We want to be uh, getting somewhere with with the community's acceptance of the design. I was really inspired by what the CEO of Oz Minerals said in his talk at uh, IMARC um, at the end of the year about the development of their Carapatina mine, which they took very quickly into production. But very early in the development phase, they met with the traditional owners of the land and they said, if we cannot come up with a design that you are happy with, we will not develop this mine. That, that's a very significant step forward for the incumbent industry. But we need to get from... It's a very important statement. Yeah, it is. But, but we've got to get... So it's only a first step. You know, to give veto is the first step. Uh, that, it's, a, it's a much longer journey to give real participation. That's right. It's not the end game. And the industry is so afraid of veto, but that's the least of your worries. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Participation is where we need to get to. So when we say 100 simultaneous users of the, of the design tools, we're not just talking about the electrical engineer, you know, the structures engineer, the waste engineer, the water engineer. We're not just talking about the disciplines. We're talking about citizens, we're talking about regulators, because clearly regulators will need to be on board here. I mean, there's going to be no documented design to give them. <laughs> They'll need to be with us in the model. And so we're talking about a much a, a radically transformed design process in terms of the experience of participants. That's fantastic. So what's your end game? You know, in, in a dream world, what does success look like for Inspire Resources down the line? So we want to be orchestrating projects, uh, mining-centered projects as the prime contractor. But those projects would be a combination of mining, electricity, water, and other elements of uh, economic development. Now, clearly, there's a, there's a long path to, to follow to get to a point where you have a community economic development corporation that is empowered with the extraction rights and to whom we can provide that service. So we're going to navigate our path in, in steps to get there. But we are hoping to secure some kind of pilot project within the next few years. Uh, and we also believe that uh, as we pull together these digital capabilities for the design process, uh, we hope to attract a venture investment in the next 12 to 18 months that would significantly accelerate that so that we can really move faster. Because, you know, the, 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 the day of reckoning for the sustainable development goals is less than 10 years away now. And we have to uh, inject a sense of urgency into this to, to get somewhere. So it's all about speed. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a really admirable approach you're taking to, to try to accelerate our progress on the SDGs, I have to say. So when you think about the future of mining's contribution to community development, what are you most afraid of and what are you most excited about? I'm excited about, about a sustainable future. I'm excited about circular economy. I'm excited about uh, decarbonization. What I'm afraid of 
is that the, the material demands of these shifts will create new costs in the commons, in, in communities and in ecosystems. You know, people talk about how market forces will ensure that there is always adequate mineral supply. But what we don't talk about is how increasing or de decreasing grades, increasing waste will increase the cost. And there's the reality of planetary boundaries. That's right. So if we, if we have to allow greater adverse impact in order to achieve decarbonization, then that's really unfortunate. That's not a just transition. That's, that's a fail. Uh, and so we have to find a way to escape from that simple sort of market force adjustment that just says, well, you know, we have to have sacrificial zones in, in order to make this possible. You know, we, we can't afford to have a future like that. We have to find a better model. That's right. I, I would also um, recognize that, you know, there are a few incumbent mining companies who are doing a really good job of trying to change their impacts on the commons. They're doing it in an incremental kind of way. Even Anglo-American, I think, is, is kind of incremental. But I would like to recognize that there are companies that are, that are, that are going to great efforts. They are part of the solution as well. We're not, we're not looking to disrupt them. We're not looking to replace them. Mining is going to be a mixed bag into the future, and everybody needs to find a way to move in the right direction. So, you know, let's celebrate those companies that are taking risk and making efforts to move in the right direction. What are the companies? Yeah, yeah, the, the, so the companies that I've um, become aware of, uh, companies like Lundin, B2 Gold, Trivali, Anglo-American, Oz Minerals, that, you know, there are companies that are quite notable for the, for the efforts that they're making. Mm -hmm. Brave efforts indeed, um, as are yours. It's very purposeful. <laughs> you know, the show is called Prospecting Purpose and how much I love thinking about the ways that mining can help tackle some of humanity's grand challenges the way you guys are trying to do at Inspire Resources. You mentioned having a massive transformative purpose uh, and to quote, that's to fuel sustainable community development at scale. What about you personally, though? What does purpose mean to you for the mining industry? I've come to the opinion over the years that that the moral imperative of capitalism is innovation for societal benefit. You know, that's, capitalism is, creates enormous privileges for corporations and the, the quid pro quo for that, what enables the social license for that, if you like, is that capitalism creates societal benefits. Now, in Milton Friedman's day, this, that was pretty straightforward. You know, you, you succeeded as a company, you hired more people, you paid them more money, and you created a middle class. And so there's been this brief period in, in human history when... All you had to worry about was making profit and everything else would work. But, you know, I think that came to an end at least 20 years ago. Some would say 50 years ago. But uh, it has come to an end. Well, it speaks to that progress thing that we started the episode with. Yeah, exactly. So now we have to find new ways to rebuild trust in business. It, because business, uh, the private sector can do things that the public sector can't. I spent 30 years working in the public sector you have very limited choice in the public sector. In the private sector, you have enormous choice, actually, and enormous responsibility as a result. So imagine this, for example. If we created the world's most advanced mind design capability, the world's most sophisticated digital tools that can create an order of magnitude, more triple bottom line benefit, and then we said the only way you get access to these tools is if you have at least 51% local community ownership of your project. 
you know, that, that, that would have a huge <laughs> impact. And, and it's entirely yeah. within our gift to do that. If we choose to do that, we can do that. We can have that impact. You know, so business sees itself as being very constrained, constrained by regulation, constrained by business models and practices and, uh, and, and very conventional thinking. But actually, if we apply different thinking to this and simply look for the places where we have choice and then exercise that choice freely according to our principles and our, and our purpose and our values, we, we can have enormous impact. But that will not happen if society shuts us down because we simply become rentier capitalists. You know, if we simply sit around on assets, consuming the rent and feeding it to distant shareholders, then we will be shut down. And, and if we're shut down, we can't have those impacts. So purpose to me means finding a new capitalism solution that can solve these exponential wicked problems that mankind is facing. Sounds like a real call to action to uh, adapt or die. Uh, it's exactly that. You know, but but don't just don't just think about what direction adaptation has to lie in. Think about how fast it's a vector. You know, it has direction and magnitude, and incrementally moving in the right direction in an exponential world is not going to solve the problem. That's right. So one, you can choose. Two, you better do it quick. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and use use that choice for good. You, you know, use that choice yeah. that you have in the private sector to yeah. uh, create a sustainable future for mankind. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful call to action, Andy. Thanks so much. Well, that is all for today's episode. This is Liz Friel on Prospecting Purpose. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Andy, for being my co-host today. Thank you very much, Liz. Well, that's all for today's episode. If you're looking to connect with Andy or learn more about his work, you can reach him via LinkedIn or at inspire-resources.ca. This episode is powered by Simpact, an ESG think tank and sustainability advisory firm on a mission to shape a more sustainable, socially just, and brighter future for all. Visit us at sympact.ca to learn more. What's your purpose?